This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There's another hijacking in progress tonight. An American Airlines jet, Flight 119, hijacked while en route from St. Louis to Tulsa, Oklahoma. The hijacker reportedly asking for half a million dollars ransom. He forced the plane to return to St. Louis. He allowed 80 passengers to get off. However, he's holding 14 male passengers and seven crew members hostage. The latest is that the plane has taken off again from St. Louis, circling over the St. Louis area. It's not known whether the hijacker intends to fly on to some other destination or wait in the air until his demands are met. Quiet had fallen over Lambert International Airport. As soon as American Airlines Flight 119 made its first return to St. Louis, inbound flights began circling. Outbound flights were delayed and, in a short amount of time, canceled. The airport had shut down. Meanwhile, authorities descended on the area from the local Metro Police to the FBI. Inevitably, they were followed by the local press. No one wanted to miss the opportunity to break a hijacking story. And yet, entirely by coincidence, one reporter had already gotten the jump. I interviewed the head of security for American Airlines the day of the hijacking. He said some fairly provocative things like, uh, we would never consider using magnetometers to, to see whether people were carrying guns onto planes. That's Bill Freevogel. For many decades, he was a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and he was already at Lambert, doing a story about the lack of security on the day McNally hijacked Flight 119. St. Louis is a little city. There are not going to be any hijackings in a place like St. Louis. Well, he was saying this like almost the same time that uh, McNally was getting ready to get on the plane and hijack it. For a journalist, it was a good time to be asking the question. For, for him, it was a bad time to be answering the question. As Bill had discovered, only two of the nine airlines at Lambert had metal detectors. Not that it mattered. Back on the tarmac, Mac had caused a crisis and he knew it. He watched from the plane windows as the flight traffic halted around him. When we are on the runway, initially, all landing and takeoff stop. All traffic would stop at the airport. So this is intermittent. They're going from a lot of flights in and out and then whenever we show up, everything stops. As far as what's going down uh, in the terminal, it's my understanding this incident was covered on the local news minute by minute. I do remember we were getting word in the early evening that something was going on through police scanners and uh, wire services that there had been a hijacking to our south and that uh, the plane apparently was heading for St. Louis, which gave me and my cameraman the cue to get the heck out to Lambert and find out what was going on and see what we could see. That's Don Marsh. At the time, he was a young breaking news reporter for St. Louis's KTVI News, now the city's Fox affiliate. Certainly didn't expect that we were gonna spend most of the evening and well into the next morning. 
at the airport. Well, we got to the airport and we were, as I recall, told to take position on the roof of a parking garage, which was just uh, outside the, uh, the perimeter of the airport, if you will. We got there, uh, as did other media, at about the same time. Uh, early evening, it wasn't quite dark. About a thousand yards away, I would say, uh, around a single plane, it was floodlit. There was some activity around it, but we didn't know precisely because we had access to no kind of information, uh, anyone telling us exactly what was going on. But it was just a waiting game. We were waiting to see what was going to happen. Before too very long, things did begin to happen, which were quite startling to those of us on that roof. This is American Skyjacker, the final flight of Martin McNally. I'm your host, Danny Wisentowski. In our third episode, Martin McNally has successfully hijacked an airplane and received half a million in cash from the FBI. Now he just needs to figure out how to get away. The five parachutes Mac requested in his list of demands had finally arrived on Flight 119 by the late evening. Sharon Matteo remembers this series of events clearly. I had parachuted in 1971. I knew when they brought the parachutes on board that they did not bring McNally the good ones. They brought him reserve chutes. And uh, I didn't say anything to him. But they brought in these five parachutes. And I looked at these parachutes and I said, uh, where are the backpacks? You got me reserve emergency chutes. Uh, you're trying to kill me. Instead, there were harnesses for the parachutes. This was a problem for Mac something he hadn't picked up on during his crash course in skydiving at the local library. He did not know how to put one on. He said, tell one of the guys up front to show me how to put this on. So they sent the flight engineer back who demonstrated how to put on a harness and attach the parachute. But the straps were tight and he was sort of hunched over. And McNally had the gun on him and he said, that doesn't look right to me. And at this time, the captain said, we have a parachute expert at the airport who will show you how to put one on. I looked at my watch and I said, I don't have time to uh, delay this thing any longer. I'll have to go with the reserve chutes. I want to open up three of these chutes, three of these chutes, open them up, pull out the shroud lines. And if I see a shroud line that is ripped, uh, it's all over. So they did that. They opened up these chutes pulled out the shroud lines, everything was intact. So I got to believe that these other two chutes uh, are gonna have good uh, shroud lines. McNally got up and had the other girls, flight attendants, help him into his harness. There was one time when his arm got caught in the strap and it went through my mind, we can get him, we can jump him. but I was the largest of all the flight attendants. There were petite little girls, and 
I don't know, the other men who are, were our hostages were several rows up, but it flashed through my mind, maybe we could get him. But I didn't move. Now that all of Mac's demands had been met, the money, the parachutes, even the collapsible military shovel, he decided to release most of those remaining on the plane. As both a gesture of goodwill and because it meant having fewer people to keep an eye on. Uh, McNally originally wanted to keep the four of us flight attendants and two hostages. And we told him there was no way we could all fit in the cockpit. So he said, then I want two girls and one hostage. You can talk among yourselves who wants to stay. So my flying partner and I had been flying three months. The other two were very seasoned at three and four years. And the girl who was the number one flight attendant said, you two, to my partner and I, you two get off here. So that's when we got off. I remember being at the top of the portable stairs, very dark, where do we go? I remember the air hitting my face and I'm free, but I also remember we're leaving our two flying partners back and, and that was scary. We go down the stairs, out of the darkness came this pickup truck. The guy yelled out, FBI, hop in. So we hopped into his pickup truck and he took us to the back of the airport. Now, finally, Mac was ready to move on to the next phase of his plan. Take flight once again, this time on course toward Canada. But what happened next was truly stranger than fiction. The hijacking was starting to gain traction in the news, and all over the country, networks were cutting into their regularly scheduled programming. In other words, they weren't running commercials or anything else. That's what I understand. And I also understand that traffic was backed up for a mile or maybe two miles on I-70, coming and going. People in the area heard this on the news, saw it on the TV, and they wanted to go to the airport to see what was happening. So there was thousands of people at the airport, at the terminal. While some of those were local onlookers, many were passengers either trying to leave St. Louis or just passing through on their way to somewhere else. All those people were now stranded. Their flights canceled. And a lot of them were angry. Across the street from Lambert was the Marriott Hotel, and its bar was now packed with weary travelers drinking away their frustrations while watching the hijacking unfold live on a small black-and-white television. Hijacker reportedly asking for half a million. It was a lively scene, and for some, the alcohol was helping to quiet their grievances. For others, it was having the opposite effect. It's just past midnight, and one man at the bar had been watching and listening to the events unfold with a growing amount of frustration. This man's name was David Hanley. He was a local St. Louis resident who was supposed to be picking someone up from the airport that evening, but couldn't, for obvious reasons. The story was that he had been drinking in the bar. He was waiting for an arriving relative at the airport, and he was there, and he was drinking. But uh, as I recall, the story very clearly indicated he was not intoxicated. 
but he was ticked off about what was going on. That's KTVI news reporter Don Marsh again. In that bar, they had the, the ongoing traffic between uh, air traffic control and airplanes coming and going, and uh, that was piped into the bar, and people could hear it. Uh, what they were saying, I don't, I, I don't know, but it was fairly routine stuff, except involved in the conversation was something about negotiations going on with a, with a hijacker. Uh, Hanley got uh, ticked off about it. He thought something should happen. Not enough was happening. So he said it, uh, he would take things into his own hands. He told the people as he was leaving the bar, listen to your radios. You're going to see here, here a really big story in just a couple of minutes. According to witnesses, Hanley exited the bar, climbed into his Cadillac, and peeled out of the parking lot, driving across the street and into the airport. Literally. He drove directly into the first of two steel mesh fences surrounding the runway, just below where the television media, including Don Marsh, had positioned themselves on the roof of a parking garage. I recall very vividly what happened when Mr. Hanley left the bar. A late model Cadillac, as I recall, was crashing into the fence, a chain link fence, the fence that was just below us. It was very noisy, a a squealing of wheels, uh, noisy because of the impact of the car and the fence. And took two or three stabs at the fence before finally breaking through, and there was another fence immediately beyond it. That that was the the limit to the security around the airport, by the way. It was uh, just a couple of chain link fences. Anyway, the car crashed into that second fence two or three times again, finally knocked it down, and then raced out onto the onto the airfield. Watch that car take off and go to the west end of the airport and just kind of sit there. You couldn't hear it gunning its engine, but you had the feeling it was like a, an animal pawing the ground, just getting ready to do something. Ultimately, it did. Meanwhile, over the prior 15 minutes, Flight 119 had been making final preparations for takeoff, with Mac, the money, and the tools for his getaway all on board. Now we're ready to take off. I think it's about 12 midnight. The tanks were topped, filled up. I told the pilot, we're going to Toronto, Toronto Airport in Canada. And what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be going uh, 200 feet above the runway so I can identify that this is the Toronto airport. I've been there before, so I'll know. And well, that was just uh, BS, because I had no intention of going to Toronto or anywhere else. We got everything ready to go. The pilot starts to gun the engine, and we're rolling. That car took off toward that airplane, and it was very, very clear to all of us there, it's going to crash into that plane. It's going to try to disable the plane, we suppose. We knew the plane had been refueled, and I'm sure all of us were aware if there was an impact, that car impacted that airplane, 
there was going to be one hell of a fireball, and the story was going to change very, very dramatically at that point. We're rolling, slowly rolling. And all of a sudden, he pulls it back, pulls the throttles back. He says, there's something on the runway. It looks like there's a vehicle on the runway. There's a truck on the runway. There's a truck coming down the runway. Oh, my God. It's going to hit us. Boom. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Boom. He hits the nose, nose wheel. And then the Cadillac turned around and rolled to one of the uh, main strut tires. Almost as surprising as what had just occurred was the fact that the newly refueled 727, hit at over 80 miles per hour by a two-ton battering ram, didn't explode. All of us were just amazed that there wasn't more to it than that. The car crashed into the front of the plane, the nose of the plane, the, the front wheel. Amazingly, nothing happened. I can't imagine what the people inside that plane were thinking, watching that car heading straight for it and at a full head of speed. I, I had no idea that this was going down. I had all the windows closed, so I didn't see anything out the door. And I'm figuring that the pilot and the FBI are pulling something here. And I jump out of my seat, and I'm screaming, get this fucking plane in the air. I don't want to hear any bullshit. Get this fucking plane in the air. So the pilot comes on, and he says, we've been hit by a vehicle, and we can't take off in this plane. Let's pause for just a second. Before we get back to Mac and his now busted plane, a brief interlude on the fate of the hijack foiling hero who never was. The man behind the wheel, David Hanley. During all of this understandable chaos, David Hanley's totaled Cadillac was being doused in foam by firefighter to put out its engine fire. Hanley, somehow, was still alive in the driver's seat, with his head split open, multiple fractured ribs, a shattered jaw, and a whole host of internal injuries. After being cut out of the car and taken to a nearby hospital, he was subsequently charged with the federal crime of willful destruction of an aircraft. Hanley claimed to have no memory of the entire incident. That was his story, and he stuck with it. According to reports at the time, over the next year, Hanley would almost die twice while recovering from his injuries. In fact, he was in such bad physical shape that when he was finally arraigned in court, the U.S. attorney decided to drop all charges, saying the man had already suffered enough. 
And what then? Hanley returned again in a 1976 story in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, this time as a self-proclaimed unemployed inventor, making a zero-probability run for the Democratic presidential nomination. Quoted in the story, Hanley described the 1972 hijacking as his one claim to fame. And in what appears to be Hanley's last published first-hand recollection of the incident, he said, quote, when I said I'd stop that damn plane, I damn near killed myself, but I stopped it. After that, it's hard to say what happened to the would-be hero in the Cadillac. Hanley, it seems, vanished. A strange footnote in history. With the plane he had hijacked now critically damaged, Martin McNally's obvious, yet brilliant, next move was to demand another one. I said, tell the pilot to notify ground control that we are going to take any 727 jetliner on this runway. I don't care which airline owns it. We're going to take it. The tanks need to be topped off uh, with fuel. We need to get back up in the air quick because if this goes on much longer, there's going to be a problem. So they relay that uh, message to ground control, and they had maintenance fuel uh, a 727 on the runway. When they got that done, it took them about 90 minutes. All I can tell you is this totally screwed up my itinerary, my time frame. Now with a new plane right outside, Mac had to figure out how to get his money, his parachutes, and himself from one 727 to the other without being picked off by snipers strategically positioned on the nearby terminal rooftops. Now, I know this is going to be a, a very precarious situation because I know these people want to kill me. I don't know that they've got five sharpshooters on me. I figure one or two. Five of them trying to get a beat on my, my head. I told them, ground control, I don't want to see any flashlights, any flashes, any cameras, or any stuff like that. After having a few hostages carry the money, parachutes, and shovel. It was time for the star of the show to make an appearance on the runway. Reporter Don Marsh had a sniper's perspective to Max transfer between the planes. As they moved from one plane to the other, he was, as I recall, just in the middle of that group. So if there were sharpshooters, that would not have an easy target. There was only uh, one, one stewardess that was, was going to be going with us. I tell this girl, you stay close to me. I had my attaché case, and I put it up to my head like this. It's in my right hand. And the gun was in my left hand. So we walked down the steps, and then we started walking slowly uh, to the second plane. Now, the second plane is about 150 feet in front of us, where I told him to put it. And I'm looking around, I see this guy in a truck on the side of the plane. There's a light on in a truck, and it looks like he's holding a weapon, a rifle pointing at me. And I stop, pointing my weapon at him. I'm standing there, I'm telling you, I started to pull that trigger. 
If that was a hair trigger, that thing would have gone off. Boom, boom. But he put his hands up like this. Putting his hands up saved his life. There's no question about it. Now aboard the new plane, Mac hurriedly checked it for any stowaway law enforcement. I went up on the plane, I went up into the plane and started going through the plane, down the aisle, looking at all the seats. I looked in the men's room, women's room, and I'm looking for uh, somebody who shouldn't be there. Everything was fine. And then the pilot asked me, uh, what's next? And I says, you need to get, get this plane in the air fast. So they uh, raised the uh, rear stairs, and within minutes, we were in the air. Finally, Matt was back in the air with a new jet, $500,000 in ransom money and parachutes. Despite all the bumps and roadblocks, this small town crook had just pulled off a heist even bigger than D.B. Cooper. And to the casual observer, it would seem Mac was one parachute jump away from freedom. Any criminal in his position would have been elated. Mac, not so much. I was angry. I knew I was in trouble. I was depressed. My plan was going awry there's a likelihood that I'm gonna have absolute failure on this thing here, because I don't know where I'm going. I, I have no idea uh, where I'm at. It, it, it's gonna be trouble. It's late. We're getting off the ground at approximately quarter to two, I think it was. I knew uh, that I had to uh, revise my plan about uh, getting out of the plane. Mac's original plan called for him to jump out of the plane in total darkness, so as to conceal his exit. But David Hanley's stunt had cost Mac valuable time, and now he was racing against the sun. While the pilot steered north for the Canadian border, Mac was counting on jumping early as they passed over Michigan. He was counting on not making that jump in full daylight. If he didn't make it in time, his cover would be blown. Everybody else is up in the cockpit, and uh, I'm in the aisle. I got my gun in my hand. I got the money. I got my uh, hand grenade. I'm there thinking this. I've got a, several options here. Number one, I can go up to the cockpit and knock on the door and tell them, this was really a joke. Uh, I, was, I was doing this to have some fun. I could do that and go right to prison for this. Or I could come back here and I could bail out and hope for success by bailing out. Or number three, I could just kill myself right now. Take the gun and pop it into my head. I said to myself, well, I'm not gonna go up there to the cockpit and turn myself in. I'm not going to kill myself to end this thing, so I'm going to bail out and take my chances. 
Mac's plan for bailing out of the plane entailed opening and jumping out of the rear staircase of the 727, a design feature common on Boeing aircraft during this period. After instructing the pilot to fly at 10,000 feet, the cabin would no longer be pressurized, theoretically allowing the door to open without Mac being sucked out immediately. The co-pilot came back and uh, he said, I've never opened a door in flight, so I don't know if I'm gonna be sucked out or what. I said, okay, let's get it done. Fortunately, neither man was sucked out. So Mac escorted the co-pilot back to the cockpit, now crowded with all the remaining hostages. He told them he'd be exiting the plane over Canada, and after he was gone, he instructed them to reroute and land in New York at JFK. Of course, that was a lie. Mac was getting ready to jump, and he had to do it as soon as possible. And I told the pilot, don't open this door again until we get to JFK, because that's our next location is JFK. Now with the rest of the plane to himself, Mac acted quickly. He took the large, heavy leather mailbag packed with the half million in cash and tied it to his belt with some twine he purchased at a hardware store in Detroit. He then put on one of the harnesses and parachutes, hoping he accurately remembered the instructions from the parachuting expert earlier in the evening. I went into the back, threw out the gun, threw out the briefcase, the attaché case, threw out the uh, hand grenade, which was a smoke bomb, and um, started down the steps. Very, very slow. Now, I've never parachuted before, and I don't know how this is gonna, gonna pan out here, but I got to the bottom of the stairs, and then I'm trying to think of, how am I gonna do this? What do I do, just jump out like this or what? But as I'm looking, as I'm looking down, it's clear. And I can see lights, and uh, the lights are uh, spread apart. So this is definitely not a city, and it looks like a rural area. I ease out. The last step is here. I ease out, and then I turn, turn over. I'm hanging on to the steps. I'm facing down. My, my, my body is facing down, and my hands are hanging on like this. And I look up, and I think to myself, my God, if, if, if somebody from the cockpit came out here and saw me like this and had a gun, they could just kill me right now. Boom, boom, boom. So what I did, I released my hands. 1,000 feet above the Boeing 727, from a vantage point of a military surveillance plane, an FBI agent observed a small, dark object falling rapidly from the rear hatch. And I immediately go into a, a configuration where my feet are going down feet first. My hands were at my side. Uh, I looked down and my goggles, they were jammed up into my eyes. And then when I looked like this, gone. The wind took them off. So my goggles are gone. I'm flying down. Now, I don't know how I leveled out so that I'm going down face first and I'm prone to the earth. 
and I can just feel the air come going through my fingers like that. And I was thinking, boy, this is balls. Man, this is really nice. So I'm flying down like this, and I know it's just about time to pull the ripcord. Now, I got the money in here, right here. So what I do is I pull this hand in real slow. I don't want to destabilize me. Uh, I don't want to go into a roll or anything. So I pull this hand in, and I'm figuring that this is when I grab the ripcord and pull the ripcord. Mind you. I don't know how to parachute. Because I left this hand out, I went into a spin. And when I went into a spin, it was a, a panic spin. Oh, there's no question, this is, I was panicked. I, I don't remember pulling that ripcord, but when I went into that spin, I, I had apparently pulled the ripcord, it snapped, and when it did blossom open, this parachute, which was a reserve chute, flew out, boom, into my face. My face was screwed up. My eyes were uh, somewhat uh, blackened. I had skin ripped out of my chin. But uh, what happened is that I grabbed a hold of the shroud lines and yanked on the shroud lines. If I've got resistance, I know that none of the panels have ripped out. But if I don't have any resistance and this thing just, these shroud lines just come in, I'm, I'm dead. And it's time to say a good act of contrition. Oh my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended you and all this other stuff. I got uh, resistance on the shroud lines. So then I go down and slap my side like this. And I'll be damned. That's when I look down. The full weight of Newton's law had just come down on Mac. For the action of his parachute opening, allowing him to float safely back to Earth, the equal opposite reaction was the mailbag of $500,000 being torn loose from the twine tied haphazardly around his waist. Mac had survived the jump, but the bag of money wasn't so lucky. After a harrowing leap of faith from the back of the 727, Martin McNally had just successfully deployed his parachute. But the bag of $500,000 he had tied to himself was torn loose. It was plummeting down to the dark earth below. And this package, leather mailbag is spinning, rolling over and over and over. I said, oh my God, oh my God. I'm looking around for vector points, there's nothing. And I said, oh, fuck, that money's gone. There's no way in hell I can, I, I can ever get that again. And I said, it's over, it's over. All this time, all this money, and what have I got? Nothing. Mac was now floating through the sky 
somewhere over North America in the middle of the night, wanted by the FBI for air piracy, with no idea how he was going to get away. In that moment, he was ready to end it all. I disconnected this leg strap. Boom, disconnected. I disconnected this leg strap. That's disconnected. I disconnected uh, this. I pulled it. And I pulled it out just a little bit. And I says, damn, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I connected it up again and made sure it was connected. And uh, I said, well, the money's gone, but I'm still here. The money can be replaced, but I can't. Within two weeks, I'll be back up again. Within two weeks, I'll be back up again and I'll get a million dollars and two packages, uh, $500,000 each. And I'll take the plane over above St. Louis and I'll say, I'm back. Here's a half a million and I'm keeping the other half a million. Where there's life, there's hope. And you got to believe and have faith that there's uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Despite losing the money, Mac was now determined not to get caught. First, however, he had to figure out how to land in his parachute in the middle of the pitch black night. When I landed, I gotta tell you, I hit hard. My feet hit first, and then my butt hit the ground, and then my head hit. I was actually seeing stars where there were no stars because there were clouds. I jumped up and I collapsed the chute, and then I just stood there. I stood there. And what do you think I heard? I heard dogs all over the place, probably for miles. The dogs knew something was up, and they were trying to alert their owners. I didn't see any lights come on in the area uh, homes. So what I did, I took the chute, wrapped it up, and carried it with me. Mac began to walk through the darkness, carefully climbing over a pair of barbed wire fences, and finally finding a dense patch of forest that would offer him cover when the sun rose. Now, the original uh, intention was to uh, leave the area immediately, hot wire in a car. But my head hit the ground so hard, I was not in any shape to be driving or anything. So I was in deep trouble, and I knew it. I found a tree, and I put the chute underneath the tree. I got into the uh, chute, between the chute, and put some leaves over it, and I went to sleep. And I woke up about 12 noon. A helicopter whining over me, right over me. I could could actually see the uh, shadow of the rotor. I could see the shadow just going over me. These guys were hot looking for the, the skyjacker. But the search was actually three miles away. Tucked in his parachute, he laid there, waiting, listening, until the helicopter flew off and the peacefulness of the forest returned. Then he fell asleep again. 
Yeah, it was about 6 p.m. that uh, I uh, woke up, got out of the parachute. At that time, I took the parachute and uh, put it under the uh, tree trunk, brushed off my clothes, um, got myself looking presentable. Mac hiked a short distance to a nearby road, trying to get a sense of where exactly in America he was. I knew we were in farm country. I had no idea what state I was in, and a car was coming by. I looked at the license plate, Indiana. The next car that came by was Indiana. The third car came by, the fourth car came by, the fifth car came by. So I know at this time here that I am somewhere in Indiana, where I have no idea. I don't know anything about Indiana. And I started walking in a direction, and I walked a couple hundred feet, and I stopped and I looked around. It's all black going in the direction that I'm going in. And I turn around, and there's light in the sky uh, in the other direction. So I'm figuring that that's where I need to go, where there's light. And I start hitchhiking, put my hand out. So I'm walking down the road, walking down the road. No other car came by. I guess about uh, five minutes later, uh, a car came by and a car turned around and stopped in front of me. This guy got out of the car. He said, uh, where are you going? I says, uh, I'm going to Detroit. He said, uh, where, where are you coming from? And I think he identified himself as, uh, I'm a police officer. As the most wanted man in Indiana, Mac was now face to face with off-duty law enforcement on a deserted country road somewhere amid the farmlands. There was a pistol in his back waistband and a steely determination not to get caught. But like many other things in this story, what would happen next wasn't what anyone would expect. On the next episode of American Skyjacker, Mac tries to find a way out. And as we're walking, I told him, don't look at the cars. Just look straight ahead and don't look at anybody. Don't be conspicuous. Just walk like a regular person. American Skyjacker is written, created, and produced by Eli Kouris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. Hosted and co-produced by myself, Danny Wisentowski. Co-produced and sound edited by Nick Sinakis. Assistant edited by Max Drankpole. Associate produced by Devin Manzi. And archive produced by Chris Morecambe. Our artwork is by Jeff Quinn. Music composition is by Michael Kramer with assistance from Adam Dibb of Tin Man Music. Sound mixing by Shindig Music and Sound based on the beach in Playa del Rey, California. Host recording by Clayton Studios in St. Louis and additional sound mixing and voice recording by Christy Williams. Archive legal by Davis Wright Tremaine and production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC. American Skyjacker is a co-production between Imperative Entertainment and Pegalo Pictures. 
follow us on Instagram at American Skyjacker or at Pegalo Pictures. And please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>